Well, holiness is a condition of the heart. Paul used the term the spirit of holiness in his writings. The spirit of holiness is really a mindset uh, and a desire within to be right with God, just to make it simple, to be clean before the Lord and to not have any sin or any type of blemish in, in, in one's life. And so that's the spirit of holiness. And when a person has holiness on the inside, and then some will just say, well, it's a condition of the heart of it. But when it is in the heart, it will begin to move on the outside on how a person lives. It'll, it'll affect the music they listen to, the things they view, the manner of conversation and speech, uh, the places they go. It will affect literally every area of their life and they will begin to lay aside every weight and sin. And they begin to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. Today I'm talking with Charles A. Rodas, who has served in various capacities within the church as a leader. He's pastored, assisted pastors, and evangelized with many miracles and outpourings of the Holy Ghost. Reverend Rodas is the author of seven books, including The Urgent Need of the Hour, Revival Praying, Fasting Secrets Revealed, Breakthrough Fasting, God is One, The Godhead Topical Bible, Faith 365, Satan's Demons and You, Four Purposes of Tongues, and his latest book is called The Argument for Holiness. You can purchase his books at charlesarotis.com or on Amazon. All these are linked in the program notes for your convenience, and also I'll be featuring them on ryanafrench.com. I recently obtained a copy of The Argument for Holiness, and Reverend Rodas graciously agreed to carve out time to discuss it here on Apostolic Voice. Reverend, it's a pleasure speaking with you, and thanks so much for being on the program. Well, Brother French, I thank you. Uh, it's a great uh, privilege to be with you, and uh, just look forward uh, to this time with you today. Well, I really en- enjoyed your book. I was first made aware of, of your newest book, The Argument for Holiness, via Apostolic Review, and I'd like to give them a shout-out encourage everyone to follow them on Twitter and visit their website at apostolicreview.com. It's a resource for apostolics by apostolics in support of Pentecostal writers and thinkers, which I think is tremendous. Uh, Brother Rodas, before we dive into this latest book, perhaps you could give us some highlights from your previous books. I'm, you have a real knack for titles, and I, I'm especially fascinated and look forward to buying Satan's Demon, Satan, Demons, and You. Can you just kind of give us a, the highlights of, of those previous works? I wrote that about eight years ago. I wrote three in a row back about that time, and uh, uh, then I didn't write for a long time. I actually didn't write anything until the summer of last year. But uh, that book is really just about identifying evil spirits and how they work in your life. I I'm very privileged to have been raised uh, by the woman that I was raised, my mom, Mary Paris, just passed uh, five months ago. Oh, I'm sorry. But she was, 
yes, uh, she was quite an intercessor. Uh, she had a ministry of deliverance to women that would call upon her. She would make appointments. And so, you know, I really got a head start in my teen years uh, on uh, these things. And uh, so that's not a, a, you know, a lot of reading there in that book. It's kind of a short book, but uh, I do get very good reviews on it. And um, we deal with a, uh, quite a few subjects there how demons enter, how they can be transferred, mm. how they identify themselves, uh, and things like that. Wow, that's tremendous. And and so you've you've written these books over a period of how many years now? Well, those the first three I wrote, uh, I probably did uh, in about a year, year and a half, and that was about eight years ago. And then, like again, I didn't write anything uh, else until about a year ago, and then I i put together uh, four additional works and working on another one right now. Oh, that's tremendous. What are you working on right now? Well, it's going to be on the subject of hell and uh, the tortures and the torments of hell. You know, we, we don't hear much preaching or teaching on the subject. It's Yeah. I think we're so, uh, we ministers, I think, uh, I mean, is this what I gather? We're so afraid we're going to offend and be viewed in a negative way. We just, we just don't talk about it, but Jesus talked about hell um, much, much more than he talked about heaven. Right. And he gave a lot of warnings uh, to it. So I, I think it's, a, it's a, a worthy discussion. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'd like to dive into this newest book. In your own words, the purpose of the argument for holiness isn't to defend or define the particulars of holiness, but instead to defend the stance that holiness is required in the 21st century. And you stated that holiness is just as important as the new birth. I happen to agree with you. But for those listening, can you give a quick definition of holiness and why it's on par with the new birth experience? Well, holiness is a condition of the heart. Paul used the term the spirit of holiness in his writings. The spirit of holiness is really a mindset uh, and a desire within to be right with God, just to make it simple, to be clean before the Lord and to not have any sin or any type of blemish in, in, in one's life. And so that's the spirit of holiness. And when a person has holiness on the inside, and then some will just say, well, it's a condition of the heart it is. But when it is in the heart, it will begin to move on the outside on how a person lives. It'll, it'll affect the music they listen to, the things they view, the manner of conversation and speech, uh, the places they go. It will affect literally every area of their life, and they will begin to lay aside every weight and sin. And they begin to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. And, um, well, I hope that answers the question partly. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I've often compared it in my mind, and I'm just curious if you think this is a, a legitimate analogy. When we're birthed into the church, we enter into a covenant relationship with the Lord. We become symbolically the bride of Christ. And I often tell people when I'm, when I'm trying to explain holiness, outward holiness, if you love your spouse, if you love your wife or your husband, that love is, is on the inside, but you would never be able to get away with a marriage relationship or a covenant relationship where you say, you know, I love you on the inside, but 
outwardly I'm doing all of these other things. I'm flirting with other people. I'm, uh, you know, <laughs> you, right. you could, because we understand intrinsically that if you love your spouse, there's going to be changes in your life. Uh, when, when you get married, you know, your whole life changes. And right. Uh, right. I, I don't know if that's a, an analogy that you find relevant, but uh, we seem to yeah, understand this in human relationships, but we struggle to understand it in our relationship with God. Does that make any sense? Yeah. yeah yes, sir. Uh, brother, I believe that, that that's very good. Uh, and, and I'll just cap off on that. When my wife and I first got married, um, she, uh, I don't know, I, I came out of the bathroom, washed my hands, and I remember she walked in there a little while later, and she said, you left water in the sink. Mm-hmm. I said, I, I didn't leave water in the sink. She's, she said, well, come over here. I looked in the sink. <laughs> she said, you left water in the sink. I said, there, there's no water in the sink. <laughs> <laughs> well, she was one of those that she liked to wipe that little the little drips out, you know, yes, <laughs> the hand towel, wow. wipe it out. Well, that didn't happen in my, in my growing up years. Mm. My mom didn't do that. I she said, and she said, she, she said, we need to wipe that out. I said, wipe that out? Wipe, wipe out that water? <laughs> yeah, take the hand towel and you need to wipe that out. I mean, she was nice about it, but <laughs> I was just dumbfounded. Okay. Well, it took a little bit of time to get used to doing it. I had never done that in my life. <laughs> But you know what? I began to do it. I could have resisted her and said, well, that's ignorant or whatever. And that's silly. And that might be to some people, but that was my wife. You love her. And I love her. I yeah. want to please her. Yeah. And you, you're right about that because when you love somebody, you want to please them. It may not please you. And a lot of people get the excuse, well, I'm doing this and I don't feel bad about it. It don't matter that you're not feel, feel bad about the standard of holiness. It makes no difference how you feel. The Bible doesn't say you have to feel bad about it. And the reason we don't feel bad about things that God doesn't want us doing is because our consciences over our sinful lives have been somewhat seared. And God has to restore that. But regardless if you ever feel bad about it or not, I didn't feel bad about leaving that water in the sink. But because I love her, like you said, and the prisons are full today of people that said, yeah, I'd kill him again. Yeah, I'd steal again. Yeah, I'd rape her again, you know, to be blunt. But that's the mindset of people today. And we take that into the church, and that is not the spirit of holiness, and that is not the love of God. Right. I think it's a misunderstanding of, of God himself. Our, our current culture, what I, what I call churchianity, in America at least, tends to view God as as really not really unconcerned with with our daily lives as long as we you know check a few boxes here and there but the bible's clear god god cares about a lot of things that impact everything that we do on a daily basis and it keeps bringing me back to to marriage which is like a marriage you you don't get to live like you're single once you're married and once you're committed to the lord you're you're not your own any longer Right. So, how do you differentiate? You, you mentioned it briefly, but I, I just wanted to talk to you about it for a second here. How do you differentiate man-made rules and standards from biblical holiness? So, this is the charge that we holiness preachers get a lot as well. That's that's a standard, or that's man-made rules, and it would take us hours to go through every one and, and try to debate them individually. I, I I tend to try to stay 
uh, right in line with the Bible and, and eliminate man-made rules. But Paul did say to follow or imitate me as I imitate Christ. So how much leeway or authority does a pastor have outside of the Bible? Well, number one, you know, we need to walk in the fear of the Lord. And uh, a problem with that is so many preaching today dumb down the fear of the Lord. They said, well, it just means respect. No, I'm sorry. It means a whole lot more than respect when you studied out. You know, I was sitting in the presence of a preacher one time, and he said that, and he used some Greek word and tried to prove that point. And I was looking right at the, you know, Strong's, and it disagreed with what he said, so I'm not sure what he was reading. But anyway, we need to fear the Lord. It is respect. But again, when we're working out our salvation with fear and trembling, you know, we're, we're going to want to do what the Word says. So if the scriptural teaching is about men not wearing women's apparel, for an example, right. and the scripture says it's an abomination, well, somebody says, well, the Old Testament doesn't apply. Well, it does apply. It's written on the tables of our heart. God did not do away with the Ten Commandments. He did not do away with thou shalt not murder, etc. Uh, God did not change the moral laws. Okay, sure, there are some ceremonial laws that were done away with, etc., but all of the moral laws are to be lived by. And how much do we as ministers um, have a right to, to change or alter or uh, how did you say it? Well, for, to- for example, let's say um, I think one thing just about every pastor could probably agree on is that methamphetamines would be would be sinful and wrong or uh, pornography would be sinful and wrong. And yet we don't have a scripture that says thou shalt not do those things specifically. We have principles. And, and so every pastor has the responsibility to take the principles of, of the word of God and extrapolate them into, into modern living. Obviously there's sometimes disagreement on that. Do you feel that a pastor's authority is strong in that area? Should, uh, do you feel like people should be very careful to disagree when a pastor is trying to make a biblical stance from principles? Yes, sir. Thank you. Uh, and, I, and I do. I, I think we need to fear the Lord and to respect the man of God because he's speaking the word of God. Now, of course, you know as well as I do, some, you know, don't preach or teach holiness, even though they have Acts 2.38, you know, and they just have the new birth, but they don't have the cleansing message. <clears throat> but um, I believe that the, uh, the man of God has the authority to preach the word of the Lord, that we need to strive to be obedient and respectful to that, even when we don't understand it. And many times we're not going to understand because there's a greater revelation that comes through the ministry that God gives uh, because he is the teacher and he is the, uh, the shepherd of the flock. And so, therefore, we need to trust his authority. And he's using scripture. Uh, it is making spiritual sense. I mean, sure, I, you know, I was questioned one time because I had a colored shirt on. <laughs> right. Yeah. Me too. By a minister, I, I, I was dumbfounded. I didn't know what to say. I, I didn't know anybody could be so strange. But because I didn't have a white shirt on, it was like I was uh, wrong or sinful or something. My goodness, you know. I wonder what he does on the side that I'm not aware of. He's worried about a uh, blue shirt. You know? Yeah. 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 <laughs> I've been there too. Yeah. You know, but there's no scriptural. There's no scripture or anything to point to a doctrine of that. Uh, I mean, that would be hard to support. I want to walk in the fear of the Lord and 
high respect uh, to our authority, our pastor, and uh, other the fivefold ministry. You know, I feel like the church is constantly having to react to the changing culture, which is healthy to some degree, unhealthy to other degrees. You know, my grandfather was a he wasn't a preacher, but he was just a tremendous saint of the Lord on my mom's side, O'Neill Smith, and. He had a lifetime conviction against red dresses, uh, no matter how modest they were, um, because in in his childhood that was associated with, uh, with you know with being a harlot or something of that nature. And so he always viewed, which as as culture changed, that that really no longer became relevant. But in his mind, that was still relevant. He 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 kept that in his thinking his entire life, but. When I look back to, to preachers in the early days who might have preached against you know women wearing a red dress, there was probably some real wisdom at, at the time in doing that. So the church is constantly having to walk that line. I always pray for saints that they can that they can have the the wisdom and the and the desire to please the Lord where they can follow the ministry in that. Of course, I think we have to lay those things aside when they're no longer culturally relevant but what you focus on mostly is is things that are established principles of the word of god and you you divided the book into four chapters the first being the spirit of jezebel what is the spirit of jezebel can you kind of talk us through that a moment well um i would uh, describe it as a, a spirit or mindset uh basically to uh, love the world for an example, when a when a woman or a lady or a uh, young lady wants to look like the world, her her dress fashion is uh, seductive. Um, you know, because Jezebel was known by paint on her face, uh, and we know it was more than the outward. Of course, we've already discussed it's an inward uh, holiness, but. It, but when it's not on the inside, it definitely shows, in most cases, on the outside. And when a girl, uh, and it can apply to a man as well, but it seems to show more with females. But when there's a seductive dress, um, really tied clothes, and you know, showing uh, of the body. And, uh, and a seductive in modest, spirit, yeah. Right, and... It's amazing what's happening in apostolic churches and how prevalent this is. Um, and I believe that is primarily the spirit of Jezebel. It's um, what I would also call a charismatic spirit, where it just really doesn't matter in that individual. It's also a very spiteful and manipulative spirit because the Jezebel spirit isn't just content to be seductive and and all of those things, it wants it wants everyone around her, or everyone around that spirit, to become that way as well. And it really takes, in my opinion, an Ahab spirit in men to foster a Jezebel spirit in the church. You have to have men that are attracted to Jezebel, men that are weak and willing to allow that spirit to fester. It seems like they kind of go hand in hand. Wow, that's that's awesome. Right. I, I heard a preacher many years ago saying, I think that I even mentioned in the book, and this is strong, so you might want to edit it out. But um, uh, the preacher said, preaching, he said, some, some preachers will not preach against 
Um, we can name immodest things. I won't go into that, but they won't preach against it because they like to look at it. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. And their church, you're right. You're very right. And I agree because I've seen young ladies that begin to grow up from girls. And I, I, I've seen their dress that when they were a kid, they didn't care, you know, to wear more modest dress. But when they got up, you know, maybe around those teen years, I've seen their dress change. I've seen their dresses get shorter. And I also seen with that a look on their face and a look in their eyes that would look like, who are you to tell me or look at me mm-hmm. now? Yeah, it's a rebellious spirit. It really is. And it's a, it's allowed by parents and it's allowed by ministries. It's, it's sad. It's tragic. Well, you know, I, I tell young men in my church if a young woman comes into the church and is immodest, maybe they don't know any better, and you're obviously attracted to that, and you're you're outwardly attracted, or if you're if you're choosing to interact with people who are not living a holy lifestyle, and that that's what you're drawn to as apostolic men, what you're doing is you're telling apostolic women they're not beautiful. You're demonstrating that you don't love holiness. And so that sends a signal to young apostolic women. Well, I have to be, I have to adopt this spirit in order to be attractive, to be beautiful, to be relevant. And so I think that men have a responsibility to love holiness and, and to demonstrate that to godly women so that they feel secure in living a righteous lifestyle. What does it mean practically to perfect holiness in the fear of God. I know we're kind of circling around a similar question, but I'm kind of wanting to zero in. The Bible does say to perfect holiness in the fear of God. What, is, what does that mean to you, and how can we help someone understand it? Well, that's really a good question, um, uh, Brother French. Um, and I believe that when a person is born again, I believe that they are endowed with the spirit of holiness. Now, I, I believe with that, though, it is really up to them to right. keep that, to monitor that, and to perfect that. I mean, sure, they, they walk out of the church, and they've not had any teaching. They walked in the church the first time, and they've lived a worldly life. And what do they do? They go out and light up a cigarette, maybe. They go out, they're back to their boyfriend they're living with, what have you. And many times they just don't know. But we don't know how, how God is dealing with them. Don't do that. Don't go there. And they don't know what to do with that. Of course, it's up to them. Uh, it's up to all of us to perfect that and to work on that and to lay aside the weights and the sins. I believe weights are different than sins. I don't believe that weights necessarily are sins. Right, right. They can become sins. But there's things I won't do because it will hinder my walk. It'll hinder my race. It'll slow my race down. I've got to make this race. I've got to finish this race. And people nowadays are many are not afraid to sin that forget the weights right sin is yeah not even a question and when you begin to walk in the fear of the lord and you begin to perfect holiness what is this that i need to do okay well this is bothering me i need to deal with that well it's not bothering me but i heard pastor french teach it i heard him preach it well it doesn't bother me well i need to i need to look at that i need to examine that i need to work on that i need to pray about that you know, and so I'm. What am I doing? I'm working uh, on myself. I'm perfecting this in my life. I'm taking this area, this this music that I've been listening to that I love. It. I've always listened to it. I don't see anything wrong with it. 
Well, I don't feel bad about it, but you know what? I've got to, I've got to love God. I've got to, I've got to recognize, listen to the lyrics. What is it saying? What does it sound like? What is it promoting? Just using that as an example. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, I recently had a conversation with someone in my family and they were telling me in disappointment how that they were in conversation with someone that had in another church they had known for years and that church has, that person has been in church for decades, but that person began to justify their country music <laughs> and how yeah. they went on and raved and raved about how there was nothing wrong with it and began to make fun of preachers that preach against it. And my, I was just amazed that certain things could be said and to talk so down against men of God that do stand for separation from the world. And, um, that, that's not a spirit of holiness. That's not the fear of the Lord. You know, that's certainly because, not perfecting uh, holiness. Sure, right. And you talked about your grandfather, you know, and the red dress. Well, sure, and all of us would say that's not necessary, but that was his conviction. But you know, I've always felt this way, and I've heard it preached, and I've taken this attitude. I'd rather do a little more, being unsure, maybe be, do a little more in holiness and separation and make it, and then not do enough, because I'm not fearing the Lord, and not make it. Yeah, I'd, I'd always rather err on the side of righteousness than on the side of fleshliness. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. You know, I good. think you really hit a just a really good thought that I, I, it never really dawned on me until you said it. There was a time, I think, when in apostolic circles, most of our differences revolved around weights in, in terms of lifestyle. One, one preacher might consider one thing a weight that someone else didn't consider a weight, but in the end, we were all, we were all avoiding sin. There might have been a little difference on the margins, but now we've strayed, I, I'm afraid, and I don't want to blanket anybody because there's so many wonderful men out there, but... But I do think that now it seems like when we're debating, we wind up actually debating issues of sin and not just issues of what might be a weight that holds me back a little bit or slows me down. And that bothers me. Yes, sir. You, you, mentioned, yes, sir. you mentioned in Luke 13, 24 through 25, where Jesus said to strive to enter the straight gate. For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able. I'd never heard that scripture mentioned in the context of holiness. I, I really loved it. Can you elaborate on that just a little bit? Yes, sir. Um, I believe the first time I heard it preached, or at least one of the first times, but it sticks in my mind, the preacher and how he termed it. And he preached about that, and I was a young man, um, probably a teenager, and he had looked at his dictionary. And he looked at the word strive, and it said to him to strain every nerve. Mm. And he elaborated on that. I've thought on that. I've thought on it for 40 years since I heard that message, to strain every nerve, to strive to enter in, to strain every nerve in your body. In other words, that's a a striving. That's That's powerful. Yeah, it, it, it is. It, 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 when you think about it, are we really striving to enter in? Are we? Do we have? I think there's a spirit in in, in a lot of churches or 
in the apostolic ranks that has eternal security tied into it. Mm. And, and because there's so much preaching of that. And when, when we give ourselves, and I have a, a strong conviction about listening to, not listening to preachers, priests that are not born again. Uh, I don't do it. I don't, I don't, I don't want them speaking words uh, into my life. I agree. Yeah. Uh, it, it, because there's something about the spoken word, you know, and you can read something. It doesn't affect you like when you're hearing it, mm. uh, even though you have to be careful what you read too. But I'm not going to listen to somebody. And then, uh, unfortunately, I heard an apostolic preacher recently, and he used the term from the pulpit, accept the Lord, you know, as your Savior. No, mm. I know he believes Acts 238, and he preaches it, and he demonstrates it, but he used that term. Mm. And it bothered me because I'm thinking he must be listening to others using that term. I would never use that term. No. Because you can't accept the Lord as your personal It's not biblical, and, right. Right, it's not biblical. You know, you you mentioned something in chapter one that really resonated with me because it's been a soapbox of mine for a long time. You said Satan always wants to confuse what God has declared. He desires to pervert the commandments of the Lord. The mixing of genders is a major event by Satan. It started decades ago with women getting bold enough to put on man's apparel. Now men are getting bold enough to wear that which pertains to a woman. Why can we agree that it is wicked for a man to put on a dress but for a woman to wear pants isn't so bad. And then you answer the question, the rhetorical question, because we've been conditioned over time. Do you think this argument, the, the separation of, of genders and the role of genders, really is such a mainstream topic now with all of the gender dysphoria and transgenderism and even homosexuality? Do you feel like this argument is becoming easier for the church to make because of all of that? I, I feel like this teaching has never been more relevant or important than it is right now. I can agree with that totally. Um, but why isn't, but why aren't apostolic preachers railing against it? We've got to get this spirit out of our children because they're inundated with it at the schools. It's in their textbooks. Uh, they're making everything acceptable. And if we don't protect our children, the generation now in the church is, uh, is, is viewing everything as acceptable. But what about their children? It, it's a lost cause, it seems. And we have to make the difference. If we don't speak against it, there will be no net difference in the next generation or two. And uh, many of the apostolic people we know now, their children will be gone. They'll, they'll, it will be a charismatic generation. And so we have to speak out against it. I heard a young lady years ago, I don't remember who it was now, there was a discussion, or maybe I read it, I don't know. I, I look at Facebook here and there. But the statement was made about holiness. There was a discussion, something about it. And she said, well, these things aren't required. They're just something we do because there's no real Bible evidence of these things, the, these standards of holiness is the gist of how she put it. And, and I, I didn't probably didn't mention her in the book or that, but I addressed the idea in the book because these are absolutes and God has absolute. His word is absolute. And yes, all these things that I believe I can find them in the scripture. And I read the same Bible that everybody else reads. I don't understand 
why others can't find this stuff. I, I you know, thank, I, I'm thankful for the teachers I've had, the preachers that I've had in my life. They weren't all my direct preachers, but I've associated with men when I was young, when I was young and I was taught and I was giving documentation and I was able to study with them. And this is not stuff we've made up. It's there, but you've got to rightly divide the word of truth. It's just like Acts 38. It's like the Godhead. We understand, we know here in Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. But why is there a church world out there that can't see it? They read the same Bible we read, but their eyes are blinded. And there's a spirit of this generation that their eyes are blinded from separation from the world and the doctrine of holiness. And if it's not being preached, and if it's not being spoken from the pulpit, this generation will die uh, without holiness. You know, I can't speak for every generation. Uh, I'm kind of in a weird middle ground. I, I'm a millennial, but just barely. I'm 38 years old, so I'm barely <laughs> squeaked into the millennial. So I'm kind of stuck between worlds, so to speak. But I do think that there is a resurgence of younger people who have seen, oh, I guess you could say a, a, a tragic falling away of people that they grew up admiring who feel a need to go back and, and re-examine things that have been let go. And I, I kind of zero in on the issue of gender distinction and pants on women, and skirts on men, and uh, even makeup. You know, there, <laughs> there's kind of this idea, I've, I've always been amazed how there's this kind of hyper-sexualized image that, that the world puts on women. Can you imagine if the church said to women, the only way you can be beautiful is if you wake up every morning and paint your face and hide your true identity. People would say the church was oppressive and nasty and mean. How could you how could you demean the inner beauty and the outward beauty of women like that? But if the world right. does it, somehow it's it's fine. And if the church stands against that and says, No, women women are are beautiful without having to to uh to paint themselves and and uh, do all of these crazy gyrations just to meet some standard of beauty. And, right, and, right. and yet, even through all of that, even now, if, if a man walked into a charismatic church with makeup, people would be weirded out by that. <laughs> why is that? Well, I'll tell you why that is. It's because our culture is so comfortable sexualizing women, and the church, sadly, has begun to accept that. And, and it's really more than even, you know, makeup's a whole, a whole discussion, but really the, the underlying sin there is this idea that we're telling women they're not beautiful unless they do something right. artificial to make themselves beautiful. I find that disgusting. Right, right. It is disgusting. I, I use this example in the book, and to go along with what you're saying, this is why uh, you know, women that are godly and there is what the bible calls the beauty of holiness yes god has beautified the meek with salvation etc but to prove the point you take a young godly woman and she's not decked out in these fashions she's she doesn't have makeup she she has the long beautiful hair she's been in church for a while and she loves the standards she lives the standards and you take some old as i called him in the book i think i called the example an old rascal <laughs> that is up in age and he begins to follow her around. And, and I was in a church where this happened. He had like three women and my daughter was one of them. She was a teenager mm, and there was uh, another 
woman, um, maybe about 20, and there was another woman probably in about 30. He had these three women, and they were godly-looking women, young women. But he was just an old, no doubt perverted man coming to church, not really in church, but he had picked them out, and he had begun to write them love letters, and he would follow them around. But why them three? Well, you know what he saw? And they were, they were three women that were, I believe, trying to live for God and living for God. But I believe he saw what confused him. And he saw the beauty of holiness. Yeah. And he took that for something else. He took that beauty and perverted it in his mind and no doubt began to fantasize. And this 50-something, 60-year-old guy began to write them love letters. It was like a, a 15-year-old kid. And the guy was married and had kids of his own. But he got weirded out because he didn't know what to do with this godly beauty that he saw in these young women. That's so sad. Well, holiness is beautiful. And I think that part of the responsibility of the church and of pastors and just godly men is to affirm the beauty of holiness. And I often say to men in my church, if if you don't believe that holiness is beautiful, there's something wrong with your spirit. There's, a, there's something inside of you that's not, that's not pure. I've thought of this many times. You know, we've, we've talked about, for example, um, hair dye. Uh, I've written an article at RyanAFrench.com about, about hair dye and, and why I think Christians shouldn't dye their hair. But admittedly, and I don't know your stance on that, by the way, you may or may not agree with that, but that's one of those biblical stances where the Bible doesn't say thou shalt not dye your hair or something of, of that kind. It's a, there's, there are principles, I believe, that you extrapolate from Scripture that make it clear that if you're pursuing holiness, you, you should not dye your hair. And there's a lot of reasons for that. But whenever I'm in a conversation with someone about these kinds of things, I, I always jump very quickly to the issue of, long uncut hair and it, the bible isn't talking about the length so much as the fact that it's uncut a woman's hair is to be uncut and then a man's hair which is supposed to be cut meaning short and that's a that's a gender distinction that the bible makes clear and it right. in my opinion is one of the most clearly outlined holiness principles in the bible and it's in the new testament right. so you people don't get to jump to their favorite well that's old testament argument and so I consider that to be a watershed issue. So if I go to that and someone disregards that, I know the conversation is irrelevant because we can't begin to talk about perfecting holiness in the fear of God if they can't even take a direct command from the New Testament and take it seriously. Do, yes, sir, do you find that. that to be a watershed doctrine as well, or are there other things that you think of as more defining than that one? No, I, I do. That, that's probably the most clear teaching. There's a large denominal church. Um, typically, when I'm preaching, I call them the worldly churches. But yeah. <laughs> it's non-apostolic. But believe, believe it or not, they have, for a worldly church, they have good standards. They're not what we believe, probably you and I would believe, but they're actually, their dress length, uh, I'll, I'll say this badly, is better and more modest than what I would see in a lot of apostolic churches. And I don't mean to criticize our own people, but it's the truth. It is absolutely the truth. But uh, you're absolutely right about the hair. And um, 
the the coloring of the hair. I agree with you on that. And again, we may not be able to read that, but you know, you can you can teach it from the standpoint of coloring your face, coloring your eyes. It's when we don't believe in God's beauty, and we don't take um, and we don't have. Basically, it's just uh, we're not fearing the Lord like we need to, and we're ready to get near that edge. And in the book, I deal with that. So many times we're ready to walk on the edge of that mountain. We're on the mountain. We're, we're on the road. But we're just, man, we're, we want to get as close to that edge as we can. Mm, living in the and, shadows, uh, yeah. I want to get away from that edge. I, I just, I don't want to get, maybe, maybe, possibly I could go to heaven with that. But you know what? I just don't want to take a chance. I just don't want to take a chance. So I'm going to stay away from that edge. Yeah, I'm going to keep the I'm going to keep the fences there because they're to protect me, not to lock me in. Yes, sir. Okay, so chapter two, you called it the uh, Watchman on the Wall. It's a chapter about pastoral leadership's obligation or responsibility to preach truth and holiness regardless of the consequences. And you quote Ezekiel 33 and six. One of the things I love about the book is you quote a lot of scripture. And Ezekiel 33, 6 said this, But if the watchmen see the sword come and blow not the trumpet, and the people be not warned, if the sword come and take any person from among them, he's taken away in his iniquity. But his blood I require at the watchman's hand. Wow, that's heavy. Can, can you talk about our ministerial obligation to preach the truth of holiness? Some years ago, I was on the phone at the time, a friend of mine, uh, he was a pastor, I preached for him. He had preached for me, and this was a number of years ago, and uh, we got in conversation a little bit about holiness and uh, standards. He had good standards uh, from what I could see, but he began to explain to me, even about women wearing pants, that it was not a biblical teaching, that you know, but it's just something they do, mm-hmm. and he had standards for inside the building that they can get on the platform, but not did not at all enforce that outside. He says, I don't know what they do on the outside, and that really disappointed me to, to think that, wow, this is just a show. Yeah, a We show. just put on the uniform when we get here, but we're not, the people aren't living anything. And I understand you have to take time with people and we have to be careful and we love people. We don't want to drive people away. You know, we all hurt and cry when people leave and we don't want to be misunderstood and sound uh, abrasive. But at the same time, we do have a responsibility to preach the word and thankful for the churches that have holiness classes for new converts. And that's all well and good, but that even within itself cannot replace the pastor reinforcing the doctrines from the pulpit because people don't always hear the class. People don't always get it all in the class. And years later, they forgot what was even said in the class. So there has to be that speaking of the word. There has to be that man that warning the people, get out of the house, it's on fire. Don't get on this train track, the train is coming. There has to be that shouting, in a sense, that preaching, the word going forth, because I want to hear it. I I miss hearing it as much as I used to hear it, and I love it. Uh, Tell me, remind me that I can't do those things. I I stand and I weep when I hear it, you know, because I love it. It's the word of God. It's warning me. It's keeping me. It is a fence to keep me safe, and if we don't warn the people, uh, 
where are they going to be? Where are they going to wind up? And I think it's just not people, preachers are not believing it like them. They're just not believing it there. It's the crowd that I've heard too many say, boy, we got the biggest church in the area, but we're not preaching anything. You know, we're not competing with the church down the street. I'm not competing with anybody. I'm just trying, it, it don't matter if you got 20, if you got 100, if you got 1,000, it, it doesn't matter. Noah had seven, but he just obeyed God. He obeyed God, and that's the bottom line. And we got to love people. And, you know, I've heard Polish preached, and I've heard preachers preach it hard and mean and hurt people. You know, that's not what I'm talking about. But there's a right way. There's a right way. Things. You do it and God, love, give yeah. me wisdom as my prayer. I'd rather wait a little bit more. God, give me wisdom when I'm not moved by my own emotions. But let me do it, by, but with God's help. In chapter 3, you, you titled it The Spirit of Holiness, and you've already referenced that from Paul's writings. But just to play devil's advocate here, and, and you've kind of mentioned it, but I want to just do it real quick. What if I don't feel bad about my lifestyle? Or maybe I don't feel convicted about disobeying the biblical teachings of my pastor. Let's say my pastor is preaching it, but I don't, I don't feel any conviction. Is that an indicator that I'm okay? Wouldn't God convict me personally if I was in sin? Well, we would sure hope that uh, you, know, you, would, you would feel the conviction, and, and I believe the Spirit of the Lord does work with us. But regardless uh, of what we feel on the inside, when it's preached, when the Word has already been written, we have to obey that. That should be out in the forefront of our life and not how we feel. Again, uh, there's, the prisons are full of people that never felt bad about what they did. It's not how we feel. But when we love God, you know, I, do I feel bad about leaving that water in the sink? No, I'd do it right now, probably. <laughs> you know, right. but I'm so conditioned at this point. I've been doing it so many years. God forbid something happened to my wife, I probably would keep on wiping it out of the sink. Isn't that amazing? You know, just because I've been conditioned and I love her, you know, and I want to please her. And But when a person doesn't love God with all their heart, they're going to make excuses. And it really comes down to a love issue with God. Yeah. Do you love God? Do you really love God? How much do you love him? You know, how much do you love the world? And when a person is not examining themselves, like Paul said, lest you be reprobates. And I don't want to have a reprobated mind. I don't want a feared conscience. I don't want a conscience that can't feel the prick of the word and feel the prick of the preaching. And And God, it helped me. To, I've, I've knelt down many times and said, God, I need to love you more. Help me to fall in love with your word again. And, and, and when we're not doing that, sometimes... God is just not going to do it on his own. We've got to keep seeking him that way. And that's why we've got to love God more than ourselves. We've got to learn to love God more than this world. I'm sure Noah didn't feel like getting up every morning and carrying more wood off to build the ark. But whether he felt like it or not, that's what he had to do to be obedient to the Lord. My favorite illustration in the book is literally bananas. It it illustrates how inner and outward holiness are equally important things. Uh, Can you share that neat story? Do you know the one I'm talking about? Where the man man said, uh, which part of the banana do you eat? I think I have it right. (laughs) Right, right. Yes, sir. Um, So, yeah, the, uh, you know, bananas in there I won't eat. 
<laughs> and there's some others that I will eat. And, uh, you know, you see those outward bruises on, on the peel. And, you know, and uh, I just don't like to open up a banana on the inside. And I don't eat that bruise part. That's just my, some people love that part. It's much mm. eating, it's brown, and I just don't like it. Some people like it. But, you know, there's an outward part of that banana. There's an inward part of that banana. And God sees the outside, and that's an excuse about it. Well, God sees my heart. He does. And that's the scary part. He does see our heart. Yeah. You know, more than we realize. So that's not an excuse. That's not an out to do what we want. But yeah, there's uh, outward holiness, sure. But God put a covering on that banana, and that is our outward holiness. And there's an inside part of that banana that, you can't see with that peel on there, but God can see it. And so we do have to be right on the outside and we have to be right on the inside. And when we're, when we're not right and we can see it on the outside, we can see that lack of holiness. We can see the lack of standards. And to me, it's God's standards. It's not my standards. It's what God has said. Standards, biblical standards is holiness. They're one and the same in my mind. It's not something I've conjured up to be different. There is no, um, to me, it's not a man-made thing. It's doctrines of God that we teach. If it's jewelry, if it's hair, if it's skirt length, if it's a separation between men and women, how they live, how they dress, all these things are biblical and can be proved by the scripture. But when I see those bruises on the outside, I know they're on the inside. I just bypass them and I get I find the banana that I want. Yeah, the outward is a reflection of the inward. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, so sir. chapter four is called cleansing the temple, and by temple you're referring to our bodies, which are a temple of the Holy Ghost. Your opening remarks in this chapter are so powerful. You said water seeks the lowest level, and you compared that to our bodies, which are made up of ninety percent water. Is that really our human nature? Do we seek the lowest level? For the most part, yes. You know, I think of the story, um, I think it's in St. John, where the the Pharisees or some Jews uh, brought the woman that was caught in the act of adultery. Mm. And they threw her down at the feet of Jesus. And, uh, you know, what should we do with her? Should we stone her? Well, the Bible says that Jesus stooped down, began to write upon the ground. Well, You know, with a little study, we learned something about that. You know, I always figured that he kind of wrote in the sand. But, you know, the Bible does say that they were in the temple. They were inside the temple. (laughs) They were in their, quote-unquote, church of the day. They were inside the building. And history says that the temple floor was, was made of black marble. And when you think about that, Jesus was able to write, stoop down with his finger and wrote something in that dusty, dirty floor of the temple. Mm. Listen, there's a lot of people, their temple is dusty and dirty, and they've not cleansed the temple. They're not taking care of the temple. They're not cleansing the temple. And, uh, of course, the analogy was about when Jesus drove out uh, those that were exchanging money in the temple. That's a different story, of course. But I just wanted to mention that. Yeah, aggressively cleansing the temple. I love that. If we're not cleansing the temple, of course, you know, he's not going to cleanse it if we're not making an effort. He's just not going to, you know, the, the worldly church grace teaches that 
uh, you sin and grace will just keep forgiving you and forgiving you and forgiving you. But that's not what grace is for. That's a misteaching. Sure, God does continually forgive if we're continually asking, and he is a merciful God. I believe that. But their teaching is that it just happens automatically, even though I'm not asking for grace. I'm not asking for forgiveness. I haven't prayed in a week, but I've sinned every day, but God just keeps forgiving me because that's what grace does. That's a misteaching of grace. Grace teaches us to not sin. When you do a study on it, it's all about teaching us to not sin, not teaching us to sin and let it go and have automatic revolving forgiveness. Yeah, grace empowers us to walk in the Spirit and to overcome sin. I've often said that the Holy Ghost is called the Holy Ghost for a reason. The Holy Spirit isn't going to dwell in an unholy temple, but there's so much misunderstanding about that. And I love how you pulled out James 4, 8, draw nigh to God and he'll draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. That's inward and outward holiness. The cleansing of the hands is outwards. That's your deeds, your actions, the outward things, and purifying your hearts, that's the inward. And so, in the end, holiness is an individual responsibility. We're all going to answer to God individually for the cleansing of our hands and the purifying of our hearts. I thought that was so powerful. Let me ask you one final question, and I appreciate your time so much. I've really enjoyed it. And I should mention before this question, that I had the privilege of growing up in a holiness home. My parents have always been true godly teachers and examples of holiness. And I've seen mean holiness preachers, and I've seen mean charismatic preachers and everything in between. <laughs> and, and I can tell from your writing and the way you talk today that you desire to preach holiness with love, patience, and compassion. How do you minister to people who have been harmed by a toxic holiness preacher? I, I, my ministry has, has come across this so many times, and I sometimes feel like it's my ministry to, to, to help that kind of heart. How do you help them mend and still retain their love for holiness at the same time? Well, that's huge. That is, uh, that's a tough one. That's really, in my mind, very difficult and something I'm still learning a lot about and trying to learn because it's, boy, it's, it's around here. It's not always about holiness. It's just being hurt by, you know, ministers, if it be ministers of truth or phenomenal ministers, and they come into church and they're carrying this, you know, they've got a wall built up. Yeah. And they're saying, don't you hurt me. I don't trust you. I want to come, but I don't trust you. And it definitely takes time. It takes a lot of patience. And, uh, but you know what? Those are precious people. Those are precious souls and they are worth working with. But I think, you know, and I thank you so much for the compliment just now. And that's who I want to be. And that's who I want to exemplify myself too when these people walk in our doors and that are hurt and they do have these walls, man, and they're serious. It's a serious, serious stuff. Yeah. You know, and I've been hurt and you've been hurt and we all have, but some are just at the edge that says, I'm never coming back. I'm just going to try this one more church and this pastor, I'm going to see what they're like. And, um, how do you do it? 
I think it probably is maybe a different answer for everybody, every person you're dealing with. But um, I think the number one thing is uh, we have to be patient and loving and um, let them see that we're, we're doing our best not to hurt them and to build some trust and build a relationship with these people and somehow pull them in and make them feel loved because they don't feel loved right now. They just don't. And they've been rejected uh, either directly or indirectly. Yeah, they'll know us by our love for one another. Right, right. That's our prayer. Well, brother, thank you so much for your stance and for the courage to write clearly about the things of God and holiness. I appreciate you taking time at Apostolic Voice. Well, Brother French, let me say this one thing, uh, two things here. Thank you so much for uh, inviting me on. Um, I said to my wife after I published this book, I said, well, this is, uh, I've been interviewed about my fasting book and two or three books, but I said to her, I said, well, this is one book I'm sure I'll never be interviewed about. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you proved that wrong. Good, good. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me on. We just want to be a blessing. The privilege is all mine. Thank you. 